Welcome everybody to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. The promotion and defense of human rights is an admirable mission and uh, since it, last century the world has seen a, a notable increase in the respect uh, for people's rights. Though there is surely much progress to be made and uh, that's the case in too many countries still today. There has also been an increase in human rights activism and scholarship uh, during this time that helped, has helped shape the way we think about human rights. Our guest author today, Aaron Rhodes, reminds us that if the world is to continue to be effective or to be effective in defending uh, rights, it's important to think clearly about what we mean when we say human rights. The term human rights, however, like the terms freedom or democracy means different things to different people. Leaders as distinct as Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, and Hugo Chavez, for example, have justified differing and oftentimes opposing policies on their notions of rights and freedom. When the leaders of authoritarian states use human rights rhetoric to justify their abuses, there's surely a great deal of cynicism uh, in their claims. But our author today makes uh, a broader uh, case that the problem is much uh, greater than that. That often by uh, including a whole array of so-called economic and social rights, the concept of human rights itself has become distorted and has led to moral confusions that in turn have facilitated the abuse of rights themselves. There's little question that the concept of human rights has lost clarity. Some years ago, Cato published a book uh, by an IMF economist who worked on trade issues in Geneva. He discovered there that in the same way that development experts often downplay or ignore fundamental rights in their quest uh, for growth, the human rights community typically undervalued or was openly hostile to economic rights and freedoms. He made the case uh, for reconciling the development and human rights communities with a better understanding of the notion of freedom itself. Uh, that author came across a manifestation of the problem that Dr. Rhodes describes in his book, except that uh, Dr. Rhodes seems to be calling for a reconciliation of the human rights community with itself, or rather with its liberal roots. Dr. Rhodes's critiques uh, raise a, a lot of questions. Uh, how ready or open is the human rights community to a self-evaluation? Given that uh, human rights rhetoric has lost some of its moral force due to confusion about the very concept of rights, what should we expect regarding the evolution of rights around the world today, especially with the rise of authoritarian uh, populism? How does this affect liberal democracies in such areas as freedom of speech or freedom of religion, for example, and indeed, how effective have liberal democracies been at defending or promoting human rights? These are big questions that the author raises in his book. Dr. Aaron Rhodes uh, is the author of The Debasement of Human Rights, How Politics Sabotage the Ideal of Freedom. He has been a human rights activist uh, for decades and an advocate for the reform of international human rights law and institutions. He was the executive director of the International Helsinki Federation for Human Rights for 14 years and is president of the Forum for Religious Freedom in Europe. 
Dr. Rhodes received his PhD from the University of Chicago in the Committee on Social Thought. Please help me welcome Dr. Rhodes. Thank you, Ian, and um, you summarized my book very well. I'm not even sure there's anything else I need to say. <clears throat> I'm just going to be repeating what you said, I'm afraid. But, um, well, what, what are human rights, after all? Uh, 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 if, you, you know, you, if you pick up a textbook uh, uh, or, or read the UN website, uh, it says something like this, that human rights are rights we have by virtue of being human. And this, is, uh, this doesn't get us very far, because uh, uh, it, uh, this is sort of like a, eating a canapé, when uh, in order to digest the idea of human rights, you have to have a you know, five-course meal. And um, it's very tautological. Uh, explanation. What what are rights? Uh, that's not uh, so clear. And uh, I find that human rights, um, a definition of human rights, has to refer to uh, certain certain very broad principles, which are important uh, stones in the foundation of of Western civilization. And they are the stones that allowed Western civilization to reach out and uh, aspire towards universal principles that apply to, to the world in general. And one of those is uh, the principle of natural law and, and natural rights. Um, that human, uh, human rights are, are the principle that states cannot infringe on our most basic freedoms, the freedoms that ensure our rational and moral agency as individuals, freedoms that can allow us to, to fulfill our human potential, our natural rights. And natural rights, okay, this is also a, a very difficult uh, uh, concept to, to understand, and I can't give a, a good definition of natural rights. I'm struggling for one. But <clears throat> we can't think about natural rights without talking about rationality without talking about uh, the process by which uh, humans can come up with principles that uh, allow us to live in a political community uh, that doesn't infringe on our freedoms. And then again, when we talk about natural rights, we, we have to refer to our capacity for reason and, and moral choice, our freedom to use reason and to make moral choices. Reason is the method and goal of true human rights analysis. We have to use reason to protect reason. But when you talk to, in the human rights community today, and I think of this as not just uh, you know, NGOs, but the human rights community broadly conceived to include <clears throat> intergovernmental agencies, governmental programs, educational programs, which have, have mushroomed uh, over the past several decades concerning human rights, you do not hear uh, the word natural rights. And I, I have attended thousands, literally, of conferences, press conferences, briefings, and meetings 
dealing with human rights. And I don't think I have ever heard the word natural rights or anybody saying that natural rights are the basis of human rights. And, um, uh, and this is a problem because um, the basic theme of this book is that if we consider human rights without its foundation in natural rights, then we, this idea of human rights is on a very, very shaky foundation and can crumble down and can be, and be, can be corrupted. So natural rights is the kind of um, constitution of human rights that keeps it uh, on, on, the, on the ball. Uh, the, the exploitation, the manipulation, and the adulteration of the idea of human rights is a serious problem. It's a problem with profound consequences, and it's a problem we need to think about. And um, uh, the interpretation of the concept of human rights has undergone very serious changes since the early 1990s. But at the same time, the state of freedom in the world, the state of human rights, the, 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 the degree to which people enjoy their human rights has deteriorated. And I wonder if there's any kind of relationship between these two phenomena, and I think there is. Um, I wrote my book with the intention of provoking discussion about this largely neglected problem and I'm very happy for this opportunity to present it uh, and, and for your participation, for your interest. And we, because we have to ask today, why has human rights lost its luster? Why is human rights no longer a clear and proud idea, an idea that can be appreciated by all? Because it resonates with what we all share, what is the universal connective tissue of our politics, and that is the will to freedom. <clears throat> I approach the question of the meaning of human rights uh, mainly as a human rights uh, activist, as a worker in human rights. And, you know, I, as, as Ian mentioned, I have worked uh, mainly in the uh, Helsinki signatory states um, um, since about 1992 or three. I have also done extensive human rights work on uh, the problems in Iran. Uh, uh, have uh, also done in human rights, rights act uh, investigations in such countries as Cuba and, and Pakistan. And, um, and I have more and more asked myself as a result of this work, you know, what is going wrong with this field? And gradually my concerns have migrated from protecting human rights uh, to, focus on, to focusing on protecting the concept of human rights. If our concept of human rights, if our human rights discourse is at fault, human rights practice will also suffer. Uh, I have a very vivid memory of uh, one time working for the International Helsinki Federation in the EU. This was in Vienna. And the EU at that time was setting up the uh, European Union Fundamental Rights Agency, which is, by the way, is a complete farce. It's a waste of money, and they don't protect. They don't do anything to protect human rights. Uh, but um, and then uh, you know they had invited uh, various members of the human rights community to come and give input uh, on what they should do, what should be their priorities, which is another farce because their priorities are, are fixed by the your politicians in in, uh, in Brussels. 
And uh, so I came with a, a couple of my colleagues and we wanted to talk about torture because there is torture in jails in European countries. And we wanted to talk about uh, infringements on freedom of expression and some things like that. But there were a crowd of other activists who were in there to talk about rent control. And, um, and, then, and they sort of pushed us out. They pushed us aside. <laughs> and this brought home very vividly this, this fact that, that, we, we, that, the, the, that the human rights community is facing with respect to the concept of human rights. And I think there are really three problems. One is this expansive definition of human rights uh, where we really, uh, you, 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 there is really no basis for deciding what or what is not a human right anymore. Um, <clears throat> the second and very related problem is that there's no basis for making priorities with respect to human rights. So uh, when we were saying, well, we want to talk about torture, and torture is more important than rent control, um, uh, they could easily refer to various UN dogmas saying, well, all human rights are equal. And uh, so sort of the, the ground, as, 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 as the human rights community, you know, working to protect basic civil and political rights, I felt the ground was being eroded out from under us and that we were being pushed out by people that were campaigning for basically political things, and I'm not against them doing so, by the way. Rent control, fine, go for it. Um, do it through the democratic process. Uh, 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 that's what it's all about, and that's using your human rights, but that's not human rights. And uh, the third problem is the, uh, the, the problem of the legitimation of, of oppression. That uh, uh, when you, uh, you know, watch what's going on in the Human Rights Council and in various other uh, institutions in the international system, and you hear a lot of, and this is something also that Ian mentioned, uh, you hear um, dictators talking about how they, <laughs> they, they respect human rights. So human rights is not really a way to differentiate between free and unfree countries anymore because they all, have, they all, pro they all protect human rights. And so this is, this, is the, this is a serious loss in the human rights campaign. Uh, that, uh, that, uh, that human rights has been appropriated. Uh, maybe that's a bad word to use these days because <laughs> that the word appropriation has been appropriated, but uh, it's been appropriated by uh, the bad guys. Um, uh, there are more and more human rights, yet they are all deemed equal. And according to the U European Union, in their Charter of uh, Fundamental Human Rights, the to have access to quote unquote free employment services is a human right. I mean, is that as important as the freedom of religion? Or to put another way, is the freedom of religion no more important than, than receiving state or publicly funded uh, employment counseling? But the problem in, in, you know, is that nobody talks about these things. and. Uh, no human rights ad advocates, no government officials, uh, and hardly any, anyone, any experts on human rights are, are raising these questions. Um, uh, and the result is a kind of widespread cognitive dissonance in human rights when, the, when officials paper over these uh, 
these, uh, these problems with thought-terminating cliches like uh, the indivisibility of human rights. And, uh, you know, I, I really am beginning to feel that human rights is a kind of charade or farce. It's swamped with concerns that are not about human rights. And the international community is swamped with human rights institutions that have nothing to do with human rights. But they're about other problems. It's not that these are not other problems. The, many of the problems that are addressed or tried to be addressed by uh, the mandates in the Human Rights Council are real problems. But uh, I uh, don't think that it makes any sense for anybody to address them in the matrix of human rights. Um, um, I want to clarify also that my book is not intended as a political attack on uh, socialism or on um, welfare states um, or on the, on the left in general. Um, I, I mean, I live in Germany and I'm enjoying all the social benefits we receive there. Uh, and I think that these represent a, a consensus a political consensus in Germany, that that's what they want to do. And they don't bitch about their taxes being high. Uh, hardly anyone does. They want to pay more taxes. They want to help more people. They, you know, we have, a, my wife and I have a, a daughter who's handicapped. And we get tremendous help from the state. And, um, and that, this, I think, uh, represents a, a, a consensus, a political consensus there. But I don't think it's a matter of human rights. <clears throat> um, Um, our politics, it's a matter of politics, and our politics, like I said, are what we do with human rights, what we can do, what we should do. Uh, Yuri Orlov, uh, whose name I hope is familiar to you, who is one of the founders of the Helsinki Human Rights Movement, um, a physicist, and uh, uh, somebody with whom I worked for, for a number of years, and I, I consider him a friend, but he told me that human rights is not about what, it's about how. It's not about goals. It's about methods. And, and I think um, uh, this, this principle is uh, something that should be um, dredged up and studied. Um, the human rights is a philosophical and scientific concept. And, and as I mentioned, I have a section in the book about the the dissidents working behind the Iron Curtain in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, in those years, who were they? They were largely intellectuals and scientists, and they approached human rights from a scientific perspective, and they thought that the, the real purpose of human rights activity was to find the truth and to document facts. And, <clears throat> and, uh, and, uh, and they very much uh, rejected the idea that human rights was a political activity. In fact, the Moscow Helsinki Group, I think we should remember, uh, had one of its um, goals, its principles. Their, their, their job was to assist the state in, in complying with its international human rights obligations. They did not see themselves as a political movement, and many of the human rights groups in Eastern Europe, including the Polish Helsinki Committee, would kick out uh, members if they were elected to parliament. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, the, the problem in international human rights comes from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And now this is a serious problem for critics because um, this, the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is the foundation of the international human rights system. And if uh, 
there's been a number of scholars have observed that the that this uh, that this Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a kind of smorgasbord uh, of human rights, and it and it and it it, it does. Uh, uh, reference the the basic uh, freedom rights, uh, political rights, civil and political rights, but it also includes um, uh, uh, so economic and social rights, and and they and a number of people have said that this is this is sort of a problem, um, but I'm saying something a lot stronger in my book, and I'm saying that this is a corrupt foundation, and that uh, and even that the that the, uh, the, the, the presence of these economic and social rights in this Universal Declaration represents a, a plot, a plot against natural rights. Um, don't forget that the communist countries um, um, in the, in the, at the end of World War II and in the, in the 1950s were obsessed with the idea of human rights. They, were, they feared human rights. They saw human rights as the idea that could knock them off their power structure. And, and they wanted to infiltrate this idea of human rights and to, 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 to take it unto themselves and to make it their own. And they did. And uh, they, they redefined human rights as their uh, uh, services to their, to their citizens. Um, I, I think this is the, uh, a sabotage of the idea of human rights. And um, it's a cliche that, uh, uh, that this uh, Universal Declaration uh, accommodated uh, totalitarian governments, um, but it's it's worse than this. It's uh, uh, the, this uh, this was an intellectual and philosophical capitulation. It was moral appeasement, a failure to take the idea of human rights, that is natural rights, seriously. <clears throat> and this is where human rights and natural rights parted company. And while the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is typically to, referred to as the beginning of human rights, the beginning of the human rights system, I really think in many ways it was the end of the idea of human rights. Um, uh, the, how did they come up with this uh, list of human rights that is uh, referred to in the Universal Declaration on the basis of a survey? So the, 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 the Human Rights Commission of the UN sent around a form to a selection of intellectuals and political leaders and religious leaders from all around the world and they received answers. And then from this they put together a list of what are human rights. And um, the, so human rights, the human rights that we have uh, uh, according to the, the UN are the rights that those people thought we have, not the rights that we do have. And um, and, 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 and the leaders of the UN claimed that they too have achieved something miraculous, something, uh, a triumph of, of uh, multicultural inclusiveness. Um, but it, it, paradoxically, they claimed to have, uh, to achieve an idea aiming at the universality of human rights. They in fact produced something that assuaged particular, particular political interests. They ignored the profound distinction between natural and human rights, in so, and natural or human rights in social policy, between human rights and positive law. Uh, they redefined human rights, claiming it as a major moral achievement, almost a miracle, to fuse the communist view of human rights with liberalism. And this, uh, I think we can recognize as a, uh, an element of, of a pervasive tendency 
very much uh, present in our own community to blur moral distinctions. It's a symptom of postmodernism. Um, the rhetoric surrounding the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and of course the, 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 the 70th anniversary of this is coming up, so you have to brace yourself for more of this, this, this stuff. The rhetoric is that, you know, that human rights has broken down the wall between the East and the West. So human rights achieved a political purpose, not to protect human rights, but to create unity in the world, to create a, a peace. Um, and, and, and when you look into the history of this document, it's extremely disappointing uh, that very prominent intellectuals who were involved, like Jacques Maritain, uh, the famous Christian humanist, found that the two kinds of human rights could be united into one if we simply ignored the philosophical meaning of human rights and considered human rights to consist of this list that came up. This is a shocking um, uh, 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 failure to, 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 ad to adhere to, to rationality and to truth. Uh, I think Hirsch Leuterpacht, an Austrian Jew who was commissioned by the American Jewish Community uh, Committee to write an international bill of human rights. In fact, this book that has been published recently about the influence of Jewish people on human rights, he figures prominently in this book. And he was a brilliant legal uh, theorist. And he refused to acknowledge the, that economic and social rights are inconsistent with natural rights. He basically punted on this question, claiming that it was impossible to say if they were natural rights or not. And then he went on to put words in his book, uh, which is a wonderful book, that freedom is not possible without various state entitlements. And in doing so, he, of course, took up um, an idea that was very common at the time. It's common today but it was extremely common in the aftermath of World War II because um, uh, Roosevelt had said that the enjoyment of, free, of freedom requires the state to provide its necessary conditions. And so freedom became more or less synonymous with uh, welfare entitlements. Uh, freedom was dependent on welfare entitlements. Uh, the post-war period in which this Universal Declaration was written was also one in which there was very much enthusiasm for the politics of the left. Uh, and the fault of the war was considered to be the fault of the right, um, um, which was a trick that uh, um, we, can, we can thank the communists in Germany for. Uh, uh, very commonly, National Socialism and World War II were considered to be the result of poverty, which you can read as a kind of exculpation of Nazi evil. Uh, welfare policies could prevent totalitarianism. And there's some truth in this because, um, of, of course, when Bismarck um, 
started the first welfare state, it was in order to prevent violence. <laughs> that was the strategy. I see I'm running out of time, but I just want to uh, talk a little bit about the, the impact of, of this concept of human rights on, on what, what has happened. Because uh, when we uh, call economic and social rights universal human rights, this is to assert that there can be human rights that are not natural rights. Because I don't think anybody could claim that access to state-sponsored employment counseling is a natural right. Nobody, nobody claims that. So if we say that there are universal human rights that are not natural rights, that have no basis in an objective and transcendent moral standard, um, uh, we say that these, these, these are rights that instead are dependent on the state. And if human rights are not necessarily natural rights, perhaps civil and political rights are also not natural rights, not intrinsic, not inalienable. Uh, but are rather arbitrary and, and optional. And, um, uh, and that's, um, that, that is what's happening today. Uh, uh, civil and political rights are more and more considered to be optional uh, and political, not rooted in natural rights. And therefore, there's something transitory, there's something that changed with time, there's something that can be changed in the future. And that's why we're at a very dangerous position in, in the world today as regards human rights. Um, uh, uh, because we have lost the distinction between, uh, between natural rights and economic and social rights. And we are, the, the, sacrosanct, the sacrosanct character of human rights in general is under serious question. And I think I'll stop there since I'm out of time. Uh, and thank you for your attention. Thanks very much. We have time for two brief comments. Our first comment comes from James Kerchik, who is a visiting fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe and the Project on International Order and Strategy at the Brookings Institution. He is also the author of The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. He is a correspondent for the Daily Beast and a columnist for, the tablet, uh, for tablet Magazine. He writes frequently for uh, such outlets as Foreign Policy, The Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times, and so on. He has been a journalist at the New Republic and Radio Free Europe. Among his stories uh, that he's reported on were the fraudulent 2010 elections, presidential elections in Belarus, ethnic cleansing in uh, Kyrgyzstan, and the Libyan Civil War. He's a leading voice in uh, international gay, on international gay rights. He is uh, a member of the Penn American Center and a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Please help me welcome James Kerchik. Thank you all for coming today, and thanks to Cato for having me. Um, in my realm of foreign policy, I often find myself usually disagreeing with, with my colleagues at Cato, but on these fundamental questions of liberty, human rights, free speech, um, I'm entirely in agreement, and I think Cato is probably doing more work in that regard than any other think tank in Washington, so thank you for having me. Um, this is an excellent book. In reading it, I had two thoughts simultaneously. The first one was, uh, why didn't I write it? Uh, but I'm glad Aaron did, because he's been in the trenches uh, on this issue for decades. Um, and the other one was, why hasn't it been written before? 
because this is a problem that Aaron identifies as having really emerged um, decades ago. And you know, only, only now that a book like this is coming out and are we having a conversation like this, I hope it's not too late. Um, and the subtitle of the book is How Politics um, debase, Sabotages the Ideal of Freedom. Um, which makes me think, what, what is politics? Politics is, is really about apportioning scarce resources, right? That's what every day our elected officials, they go up to Capitol Hill and they de debate and they decide how are we going to fund these various programs? What are we going to do with the tax revenues that we've collected? Um, oftentimes they just print money to do so, which is something that I'm assuming the, my colleagues at Cato are probably not uh, fans of printing money. Um, but to quote that, uh, that famous political philosopher, Mick Jagger, you can't always get what you want. And that's what politics is about. It's about compromise. It's about um, reaching some point in the middle. That's not what human rights are. Human rights are not about compromise. They are fundamental. Um, they are emphatically, emphatically not like discretionary spending. Um, they either exist or they don't. It's like being pregnant. You know, you either you are or you aren't. You either have freedom of speech and you have these freedom rights, these basic rights, or you don't have them. Um, governments can cut social programs and still be considered liberal democracies. They can't cut freedom of speech or cut freedom of association and still be considered a liberal democracy. I mean, this is a basic fundamental difference between politics and human rights. Um, and I just want to give you know, a case study or two in my line of work as a journalist traveling to places writing about this to, to show you that this, this actually matters, this conversation that we're having. This is not just some airy intellectual you know, um, debate where we're talking about terminology at, at a think tank. There are actually real world consequences for the perversion of human rights. I mean, how often have I been in a conversation with someone about Cuba, as one does, um, you know, to be told, you know, but universal health care, um, but excellent education system. Now, you know, put aside the merit of those claims. I actually don't think the Cuban healthcare system is that great, or the education system for that matter. Um, but, you know, I, I would just respond, well, you know, Scandinavia also has universal health care and universal education, and they also have freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. There's no reason why you have to lock people up in prison because they disagree with you in order to fund your generous healthcare systems. I don't understand the connection between these two things. But because the language of human rights has been so perverted in the way that Aaron just described, many people don't see the incongruity of what they're saying. They don't, they don't, they don't get it. Because everything now is a human right. Um, and that the, the ulterior motive here is um, it's not just to defend certain regimes that are not democratic. It's also to attack democracies. And so you'll see, um, if, if you really want to see this, this weaponized, if you want to see this sort of ideology in action, you just pay a visit to the UN. And then you look at the UN system, which is a farce when it comes to human rights. I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the fact that you know Israel is subject to something like two-thirds of all the resolutions in the Human Rights Council is an absolute joke. And it's not just because it's unfair that Israel gets the brunt of these ridiculous resolutions. It's because there's a whole world out there of actual, real human rights violations. 
that are being completely ignored because this issue has been politicized to attack Western democracies. Um, and I think that you know, for many people on the left, there's an initial attraction in talking about social programs as rights, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's nice to think of healthcare as being a human right, as housing as being a human right. If you're on the left and you think that the government should do more in provisioning these services, it's tempting to you know, go with this sort of intellectual current. But there are unintended consequences of this, which is, as I've described, is that you see you know, not only your own country, your own liberal democracies being brought down to the level uh, that they don't deserve to be at, but you see really um, uh, nasty characters using this rhetoric to mask their own abuses. Um, there's one maybe point of, I wouldn't say disagreement, or just maybe further exploration, something that we can talk about, um, is this concept of natural rights. And it's usually described as you know, God-given rights. Um, and I think that you know, one can be secular and still believe in natural rights. You don't have to believe in, 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 in a god or some sort of deity to think that human beings, by virtue of their being human beings um, and having reason, um, that we are all endowed with rights that are prior to our citizenship in any particular system or, um, or prior to politics. And I think that's just something that um, uh, worth, 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 worth talking about. Um, this, um, uh, and the distinction between, uh, between goals and rights, I think, is very important. Um, goals are something that, I mean, as, as Aaron described, you can live in a social democratic system. You can, you know, there's certainly nothing wrong with supporting a universal healthcare system, whether it's government provided or not. Um, but that's something that should be decided by politics, something that should be decided by people um, through their elected representatives, and it's about apportioning resources. Um, there is no debate whatsoever uh, about um, freedom of speech. Um, so to take, an, you know, to take an issue like immigration, um, I don't think there's a human right. There's certainly a human right to leave a country. There's not a human right to enter a country. That's up to the people of that country whether or not they want you uh, to come in. Um, and it, what should worry us, in my opinion, about some of the populist movements that we've been seeing around the world is not necessarily the restrictionist um, immigration uh, policies that they've adopted. We can certainly oppose them. I oppose them. I tend to be a pretty uh, pro-immigration person myself. But even if a country were to institute a very restrictive immigration policy to put up a wall, that would not um, you know, revoke its claim to being a democracy. If a country were to uh, as long as that was decided upon by a democratic process. There is no democratic process by which a country can decide to revoke freedom of speech, even for the most unpopular people. Even if you know, 99 of us in this room you know, were to point at one person and say, we all really hate this guy, we want to revoke his freedom of speech, that would be a fundamental violation of that person's rights. Um, my, 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 my final word, since we're talking about rights, I'm going to have to revise my biography, which says that I'm a, an advocate of gay rights. And I think that this is, this is in itself, shows how um, the terms are being watered down and diluted. Because, you know, what are women's rights? What are gay rights? There's nothing special about them. The women's rights movements and the gay rights movements, all they were asking for were the same rights to be treated equally as everybody else. And so I think in our everyday conversation, 
we should have some more humility in how we use the term rights and human rights. Um, and I'll just end on that note. Thank you. Thanks very much. We'll now hear from Roger Pilon, who is the Cato Institute's Vice President for Legal Affairs, the founding director of Cato's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, the inaugural holder of Cato's B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies, and the founding publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Prior to joining Cato, uh, Roger held five senior posts in the Reagan administration, including in the mid uh, 80s, from 86 to 87, uh, as the director of the Bureau of Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs at the State uh, Department. Uh, he has also uh, been awarded uh, numerous uh, recognitions, and his writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, the New York Times, and so on. Uh, he has a PhD from the University of Chicago and a JD from George Washington University School of Law. Please help me welcome Roger Pilon. Well, thank you, Ian. Just one correction in that intro. I wasn't director of the Bureau of Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs. That was my boss, Richard Shifter, with whom I had some differences director as a result of, of director of policy, after which I went to the Justice Department to carry out the differences that I had uh, there. Uh, but I digress. Uh, it is a great pleasure to uh, be able to comment on this wonderful book. Um, at the same time, I'm a bit perplexed by it because uh, it falls to a commenter to make some critical remarks. And um, I found very little in this book to criticize. It's truly a tour de force. And if you um, do anything in this area, if you have any interest in the area of human rights, you must read this book. It is really the book, as uh, Jamie said, that uh, should have been written a long time ago, but fortunately has now been written. Um, Aaron Wee's theory, history, and long experience in the field um, to lay bare the problems that have long beset the human rights movement as it emerged uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War uh, through the institutional auspices of the United Nations. Uh, but because I do think that uh, the Aaron's argument is on the mark, I'll take my task to be less one of criticizing his thesis than uh, embellishing it with a few thoughts of my own theoretical as well as from my own experience in the field. Uh, to frame matters, however, uh, let me start by restating his thesis. In essence, it's that by treating social and economic rights so-called as human rights, the human rights movement has undermined genuine rights to freedom, natural rights grounded in the classic common law, excuse me, nat uh, classic natural law, um, and um, that has empowered by legitimizing the very regimes that are the greatest threats to genuine human rights. At bottom then, uh, Aaron uh, writes, uh, we're in a war of ideas against anti-liberal forces and they're winning because as he richly documents in this book, and I quote, the liberal democracies are not fighting back. They seem to have lost the capacity or the will to defend the core concept of human rights that is the legacy of the enlightenment. 
He continues, if they wish to halt the decay of the international human rights system, they must do more than robotically cite violations. They must better articulate a genuine vision of human rights, one that cannot be traded off for the paternalistic favors of authoritarian governments, end of quote. In fact, when you read about the history that led to the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you see how its authors like Eleanor Roosevelt went about drafting it to overstate the matter, but not by much. Far from proceeding from deep moral, political, and legal theory, they simply asked what it would be good for people to have, education, healthcare, daycare, housing, periodic holidays with pay, that's Article 24, uh, and call those goods rights. But it wasn't entirely without theory that that happened. In fact, the more sophisticated authors knew exactly what they were doing. Before I get to that, however, let me add just a bit to the vision Aaron has presented both here and more fully in the book. He rightly grounds genuine human rights in the natural law tradition, especially the natural rights strain that emerged from the Enlightenment as distilled in the famous second paragraph of American's Declaration of Independence. The vision has its roots in antiquity, although its fullest exposition was in Locke's second treatise, which Jefferson drew on when he drafted the Declaration. But Locke himself drew in turn on the English common law, a point that Aaron only mentions. It's worth a bit more attention because from it comes our allegiance to the rule of law that is essential for securing human rights. And I found few better expositions of that connection than in Edward Corman's classic essays in the 1928-29 Harvard Law Review entitled the, uh, the Higher Law Background of American Constitutional Law. As Corwin observes, and I quote, the notion that the common law embodied right reason furnished from the 14th century its chief claim to be regarded as higher law. In other words, we are talking about natural rights here and human rights that are rooted ultimately in reason, not in will. The common law begins in earnest in the third quarter of the 12th century when Henry II established a series of circuit courts with a central appeals court. His judges were charged with uh, adjudicating cases or controversies that were brought before them. Uh, and over the ensuing 500 years, they crafted the theory of rights that Locke would recast uh, as natural rights in the second treatise setting forth the theory of rights, the theory of property, and the social contract theory that served as the foundation for Jefferson in the Declaration and for the framers in the US Constitution. In other words, they were doing, in a rudimentary way, what's come to be called state of nature theory, which draws its inspiration uh, from Hobbes and Locke later on, and is rooted ultimately in the Roman Seneca. Uh, the Declaration makes it clear that that's what Jefferson was doing. Look at that famous second paragraph, and you will see that after it says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, he sets forth the moral vision first, and only when he's outlined that does he set forth the political and legal a vision that is derived from that moral vision. So it's individual rights, human rights, natural rights first, 
politics and law second to secure those rights. And then you look at the preamble and you see this same state of nature approach all over. We the people for the purposes listed do ordain and establish this constitution. In other words, all power starts with the people. They, in exercise of their natural rights, bring government into being and empower it. The government does not give the people their rights. They already have their rights. The, gov the people give the government its power. So this idea of state of nature theory is something that we have lost sight of that has to be grasped if you're going to understand the theory underpinning natural rights and uh, human rights in, in, the in, in the course of that. Ultimately, what the state of nature theory is concerned with is legitimacy, the legitimacy of government and governmental power. So you can't assume a government to start off. You start with the state of affairs without government, and you try to determine what our rights and obligations would be in that state of affairs by consulting pure reason, at least as far as it will take you. And what you discover is that it will take you a good ways down the road to determining exactly what your rights are. But eventually, you're going to have to turn to values to flesh your rights out more fully in such areas as nuisance, risk, remedies, and enforcement. And when you get to that point, you will find that there are reasonable differences between reasonable people about the values that you should consult in drawing those lines, and you therefore have a springboard out of the state of nature into the state of civil society and the state of legitimate government. But you have to do that initial spade work first. Uh, and that will tell you, when you've done that, um, and you leave the state of nature, first of all, what rights there are for government to recognize and secure. Secondly, what rights we have to give government to exercise on or, uh, uh, or uh, on our behalf toward that end. And third, what rights we have that government must itself respect is as it exercises the powers we give it to secure our rights. Now we've got a start of a theory of the matter. And we can do, and as we go, as the old common law judges did <clears throat> to flesh out that theory, we discover that all of our basic human natural rights are grounded in property, as Locke put it, broadly understood as lives, liberties, and estates. So therefore, the violation of a right is the taking of something that belongs free and clear to another, his life, his liberty, and the property that he has justly acquired in the world. And so now you see that what we have rights to is that to which we hold title that to which we are entitled in the old sense of that word, not in the modern sense of that word. Not things that we would like to have, things that belong to other people, for example. We're not entitled to those things, although you'd never know that from reading the, de the UN Declaration of um, uh, Human Rights. So we've got starting out in property, but of course we then associate with, those are natural rights, those are moral rights, but we also come together, and there are two morally relevant ways in which we do that, either involuntarily by committing torts and crimes, or voluntarily by entering into contracts. And when we enter into contracts, we create the whole of what we call civil society or civilization, everything from familial uh, organizations to uh, business associations, giant corporations, uh, uh, all manner of, of such, uh, uh, of such uh, institutions. 
Those two are moral rights. Those are not natural rights, but they are moral rights. The category of moral rights is broader than the category of, um, of natural rights. Now, the question is, are those human rights? Well, insofar as you define human rights as the rights that belong to humans, all of those moral rights are, whether they are the natural rights or whether they are the rights that we construct when we enter into contractual relationships. So there is the start of a taxonomy of rights. Okay, now from there we have to go on and address the issue of getting out of the state of nature and into the state of civil society. And when we do that, we find that the issue of creating legitimacy is one that is very difficult to come to grips with because consent, which is normally taken as the foundation, will get you only so far because of the problem of majorities and minorities. And even when you resort to tacit consent, that went get you very far either. So what you end up with is a recognition that government is a forced association. It is an association that brings us all together by force in order to create the very, uh, the very, uh, in order to conduct the very uh, powers that we authorize it to conduct. Um, notice, however, that those basic rights that it is create, government is created to secure are all about freedom. There are no welfare rights. Indeed, this brings us to the issue of the Good Samaritan and the biblical understanding of that. It was not because he was forced by a force of law that the Good Samaritan uh, came to the aid of, of the person in need. He did it voluntarily is evidence of virtue. And so um, when you uh, realize that um, the Anglo-American law never forced Good Samaritan activities, unlike so much of the European law, you start to have an understanding of how it is that the Europeans could be so comfortable with these social and economic rights because they are part and parcel to their understanding of the Good Samaritan uh, issue, indeed, their misunderstanding of that issue. All right. now. All of this is implicit in the Declaration. You have to tease it out to be sure, and it's spelled out more fully in the Constitution. But the important thing to notice about the Constitution is that it was written in order not only to give the federal government a bit more power than it had enjoyed under the Articles of Confederation, but also to restrain that power. It was the Constitution authorizes, institutes, empowers, and limits the government that is created thereby. And nowhere does it do so more than with the central principle of the Constitution, namely the doctrine of enumerated powers. That is the doctrine that says that the federal government has only those powers that have been authorized to it by the people. And you see it spelled out expressly in the Tenth Amendment, which reads the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. And we lived under that more or less for 150 years. It wasn't perfect, to be sure. There was the oblique recognition of slavery. The framers knew it was inconsistent with their founding principles. They hoped the institution would wither away it did not. It took a civil war to end slavery and the passage of the Civil War Amendments, which, uh, uh, which um, uh, Aaron mentions in his book, but again, it deserves greater attention because there was the second resort to 
the natural rights tradition. You read the debates in the 39th Congress and in the state conventions, and you will see over and over again the resort to natural law and natural rights principles by way of explaining the need for and the contours of the Civil War Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. So what happened? What happened was that as we moved into the late 19th century and early 20th century, there was a fundamental shift in the climate of ideas, the war of ideas that Aaron talks about. It was started by the uh, pragmatists in philosophy and picked up in particular by the progressives during the progressive era. They looked to European models of good government. They looked to the social sciences to do for mankind what had been done uh, in the 19th century by the physical sciences. They were social engineers. They fundamentally rejected the vision of the founders and the Civil uh, War uh, aftermath founders. They wanted to use government to pursue all manner of social programs. And indeed, the change in the conception of law was at the core of their vision. Their idea was that law was not to be secured by judges as matters of principle, but law was to be pursued as policy through legislation. And there is the beginnings of the understanding of human rights, not simply as securing our natural rights, but rather as securing all manner of goods and services provided by government through legislation passed by majorities in legislatures or more likely by uh, special interest pursuant to the model that has been given us by the public interest economists out at George Mason University and elsewhere. And so what we then have going into the New Deal, uh, Roosevelt taking up this vision and essentially browbeating the Supreme Court with his threat to pack the court with six new members because it wasn't seeing things his way. The court caving in to this political pressure and essentially turning the Constitution on its head. And as a result of that, by the time we get to the era in the post-World uh, post War of creating through the UN the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, this was essentially the new zeitgeist, that these modern social and economic rights were of a piece with the older natural rights. And the problem there is that they are utterly inconsistent with them, as Aaron shows in some detail in his book. The idea is that the more you have government provide you with its goods and services, the more it will have to do so by taking from others. And so you have the people who contribute and the people who receive. And as that, uh, that uh, distinction between the two changes over time and there are more and more recipients and fewer and fewer contributors, you have people voting with their feet or if they don't do that, they collapse. Do we need any better example of that than Venezuela today? It is an excellent example because it has happened in a very short period of time. The Hugo Chavez promised all these goods and services as a result of which the economy began to tank as it was absolutely predicted to do. And today, not only do they not get those goods and services, they are starving in the streets. Well, I could go on, but I think you get my drift. This is a great book, and I urge you all to get a copy of it because it lays it out 
in chapter, in verse, and I thank Aaron for writing it. Thanks very much. We have time for questions. Uh, if you have a question, raise your hand and wait for the microphone. Identify yourself and your affiliation when called on. You, sir, in that second row. Tom Palmer with uh, Atlas Network and also Cato. This really is a good book, and I enjoyed it enormously. I think it, it, it raises very important alarms and parallels with territory that was walked over in the 1930s also, when all these rights were called rights of the Volksgenossen, the ethnic comrades, their national rights. We're seeing all this language again, very disturbing. But at the end, your clarion call seems to be mainly, we need to redefine, we need to think hard, we need to get it right. I'd like to ask about institutional corrections also. So not just we should all think more clearly, <clears throat> which I think is true, but what can be done institutionally because so many international institutions are embedded in this, what can be done to change it at that level? Uh, thank you very much, by the way, and for your, your help along the way. Um, you know, this question is a little bit below my pay grade, in a way. I mean, I, I, I consider myself, a, a, you know, somebody that thought about these as, as intellectual problems, and I haven't really, I'm not a policy wonk, and I, I, I don't know where things are going, and I don't have very many, you know, recommendations. But I am, uh, you know, actually I, I was hoping to have a, a chance to say a, a few words about, you know, my thinking about the future of human rights and the future of human rights institutions. And, and I think that in a way the, we have, uh, you know, we, we don't have much control over, over, over events. Uh, I think we have to be humble about this, that uh, the international law is on a shakier and shakier footing uh, not just in the area of human rights, but other areas as well. And there's a kind of unraveling going on of uh, international law and inter international institutions. There's more non-compliance with human rights uh, um, rulings of international courts. I think a very good example is with the European Court of Human Rights. Very many of the liberal democracies in Europe do not comply with rulings of the, of the European Court of Human Rights. And this is, you can look at a, a chart is going getting worse and worse in this regard, and and what's 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 going to happen in my view is that uh, uh, is that uh, international human rights institutions are going to lose their uh, role. Um, they're going to become increasingly irrelevant. Uh, they will they will lose uh, financial resources, um, and. Uh, and uh, the question is, what, what's going to happen to human rights in that situation? And I think, <clears throat> and I think um, um, uh, there will be a greater recognition in the future that human rights are best protected in, in the context of a, of a liberal democratic state. And that, um, and that international institutions really can't protect us from human rights violations. They don't. And, it, and uh, they, there's this illusion that, you know, when your rights are violated, you can, you can get a remedy 
um, from the international community and the human rights community uh, flocks to these this higher and higher level of of, uh, of uh, activity where very little goes on. So all these energies are going up and they should be going down. They should be going down into their societies and, 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 and changing their societies, their organic political basis and changing their institutions, maybe having regime change. I'm a regime change man, by the way. Just from my own experience, uh, when you look at where human rights have improved, you look at countries where they've had a change of government. And um, I'm not talking, not, not necessarily violent and not necessarily one that is, uh, you know, pushed from outside, but from inside. And, um, and, I, and I, think that, I think that in the future there will be uh, international human rights is going to lose, uh, uh, lose ground. And I think uh, human rights in, within society is going to gain ground. And we're going to look more closely at constitutions and, and, and the legal and constitutional uh, protection of human rights. I think something I've learned uh, studying this field or participating in it is that human rights are too important to be left to human rights activists and that most people who call themselves human rights activists or who work at human rights organizations are actually social workers or people who want to be social workers. And that's not to denigrate social work. It's very important, but it's not human rights work. And if you want to do social work, then be a social worker. Don't go work at Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch. And I think there's a telling difference between those two organizations I just named that have really been, have really lost their way over the past couple of years. And a, a more traditional, I, I think the, the, the group that would probably fit the, de the, the definitions um, that, that you talk about in your book is, is, is Freedom House, which is, they actually rank countries on a scale and they give them a number on whether or not they are free, partly free or not free. And this rubs a lot of people the wrong way, right? Because who are we to judge what's free and what's not free? And this is, you know, this is so old-fashioned that we're actually, um, you know, measuring things in a quantitative manner. Um, but I think that's the kind of model that we need to return to because so much of what passes for, you know, human rights today is nothing of the sort. Uh, Tom, if I could uh, pick up on something that Aaron said by way of addressing your question. Uh, namely that uh, these institutions will self-destruct uh, if they become so ineffective. And we see examples of that historically. Obviously, the Soviet Union self-destructed. Um, Venezuela is self-destructing as we watch it. But it doesn't hurt to have a little push along the way. Um, and Aaron brings this out in his book when he contrasts the Reagan administration's approach to human rights with that which had gone before when Helmut Sonnenfeld was talking about his convergence thesis, namely, we are moving more toward the Soviet model, they're moving toward our model and moral equivalency and so forth. Um, but then that was lost with the, once the Bushes came to power and uh, Clinton and, uh, and, uh, and Obama, and he goes into some detail about Obama's trip to Cuba uh, and the appalling remarks that he made there that uh, essentially saying that uh, I agree with you, Raul Castro, that uh, we could do a much better job with social and economic rights and so forth. I mean, just uh, playing right into the moral equivalency thesis. So it doesn't hurt to have a little push in addition to help them self-destruct a little more quickly. Uh, we'll take a question there in the back. Yeah. No, uh, the, that gentleman there, please. 
Yesai. I am Emmanuel Nyansenga, policy analyst with the African Great Lakes Action Network. And um, even though I prefer to be considered as a global citizen scientist, as I assume most of us are. And uh, so first of all, thank you for hosting this event as such an ornate, prestigious, and institutionalized association with a reputation for being on the right side of uh, history. I'm inclined to be confident that uh, all of us present here today are a testament to your mission and that this is surely a place that is, or a space that is highly recommended. Thank you. I, met, I forgot to say, let's keep the questions, <laughs> get to the question, keep the questions brief. I usually say that and I forgot to say it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thus, in praise of blood, I would uh, like to, or we would like to inform you that uh, tomorrow they will kill us with our families. But uh, obviously, well, that doesn't matter because uh, sometimes, um, actually, <laughs> It doesn't matter according, I'm whispering out loud, by the way. Is there a question? What is or? your question? Yes. <laughs> this fired my neurons to actually have the panel speak about uh, or elaborately speak about the 2010 human rights mapping report or the DRC mapping report, uh, which was actually leaked for some reason. And uh, also, I would like to know if uh, you would as well elaborate on the 2017 human or the Human Rights Watch torture report or Rwandan torture report. And uh, yes, just OK, uh, thanks very much. Grazie. Thank you. Um, does anybody want I don't, I'm not familiar. No, sorry. They're not familiar with the, those two reports to be able to comment on it. We'll take a question right here in the front. Thank you. Uh, Nigel Ashwood, the Institute of Humane Studies, George Mason University. Uh, Dr. Rose, do you believe in the trans-historical conception of human rights? That is, if human rights belong to every human being, that means they belong to every human being in the past, the present, and the future. It seems to be nonsensical to say that an early human being had a right to periodic holidays with pay. What? Therefore, economic and social rights are not human rights. So do you believe in this trans-historical conception of human rights? Yes. And the answer is yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> I do. Uh, yes, in the back yeah, there. Thanks. Nigel, that was a good question. Hi, uh, my name is Chuck Woolery. I'm a former chair of the United Nations Association Council of Organizations. And it was my understanding that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was really about preventing another war. 
And when you look at the consequences of the war, that uh, what we have today, uh, my question would be, what links do you see between human rights violations today, however you want to define that, and our national security threats? And I just came from a panel at the uh, uh, Stimson Center linking food security as a fundamental source of international instability, which leads to our national security threats. So my stomach is telling me food is a human right, but I could be wrong. Um, I, I don't think there's such a clear relationship between human rights and uh, conflict and uh, international security. Uh, in my work in human rights um, over, over many years, I've often come into sort of a, a, a slight conflict with the, the conflict prevention industry. And um, I, I don't know, <clears throat> I haven't been following it too much lately, but certainly in the, in the 90s and the, you know, maybe for other years, a lot of foundations um, put a lot of money into conflict prevention. And, you know, whatever that means exactly. And a lot of people spend a lot of time behind computer screens and in, in, in carols and, in, you know, different offices and in, uh, writing a lot of stuff about preventing conflict. And, and, and sometimes in, in our human rights campaigns in Europe, and Dimitrina Petrova, who, who's my friend here from the IHF, she, she can probably testify to this too that uh, sometimes we would come into conflict with people who were interested in preventing conflict and they wanted to talk and they wanted to, everybody to be together and they wanted to make peace. And we were saying, well, no, we want human rights. And, and, and human rights very often leads to conflict. Human rights campaigns lead to conflict and conflict sometimes resolves human rights problems. Uh, human rights problems uh, result in conflict, and, and sometimes they, they can they they uh, um, and it's very unfortunate, but that's the fact. And um, I think that there is a very good case for promoting human rights in order to prevent conflict, especially with, as regards minority rights uh, in, in in diverse countries where members of ethnic and religious minorities are oppressed, and they eventually blow up and, and fight, and they turn, to, they turn to violence as a way to, to, to protect themselves. And I, and I, and I think this, this, the, the, some of the institutions, like in the OSCE uh, region, um, have, have aimed at this. They've understood this, and they have aimed at this. I don't know how good a job they've done over this, but this was the idea that, they, that we want to resolve through human rights these conflicts with minorities. I hope this says something to your question. Question here, right there. Thank you. Ilya Shapiro from Cato is a truly wonderful book. Um, I'm wondering whether um, kind of the, the people who disagree over this debate on, on human rights uh, isn't simply uh, you know, whether economic social rights are, are human rights or second wave rights versus first wave rights or what have you, but simply um, have a, a, a muddled understanding of or, or a difference of opinion on what the definition of the word right is. Because um, 
I remember debating the early parts of Obamacare during the litigation going on, and, and, and someone would challenge me with, well, you see, our difference is that I think healthcare is a right and you don't. I mean, I, you know, I can think that a, a rutabaga is a, is a Volkswagen Beetle, but that wouldn't make it so. And it's, you know, the, the word right, it, for some people, um, maybe this is more of a U.S. domestic thing than an international discourse, uh, simply means something that I care about a lot. Uh, and so it's, uh, you know, debating whether, whether healthcare is a right or not is equivalent to debating whether the tax rate should be 15% or 30% or 45% as, as, as if it were just gradations of, um, of, of interest in the policy. Can I address that one, Ilya, and disabuse you of your confusion? Um, <laughs> uh, I'll give you a definition of a right. It is a justified claim to stand in a relationship with some other person or persons such that that other has a correlative obligation to do or not do some particular thing. Now, there's a straightforward analytical definition of a right. And what it has the virtue of giving us is a picture of a right as a claim against someone else to be in a relationship that means for every right, there is a correlative obligation. And the great problem of those who purport to say that we have rights to all these goods and services is that they talk always about the rights and never about, or rarely about, the correlative obligations. To have a right without a correlative obligation is tantamount to having a check drawn on a bank that doesn't exist. And when you look at the relationship that is a right and you see the obligation side of it, then you can start to talk seriously about rights because the obligation is where the rubber hits the road. And if you can't make good on that claim that the person is making, or if you cannot come up with a foundation to justify that obligation, then you haven't got a right. That's why the classical theorists talked about rights as liberty, because all you have to do to secure a liberty right is leave the other person alone. It takes nothing more than that. But if you have to provide them with goods and services, then you get into all the inconsistencies that we get into with these newfangled rights. Well, we have time for... One more question, if there is, and we'll take it here in the back, please. Thank you. I'm Shay Garrison with George Mason University, and I am so glad that we're talking about this today. It's something that I think a lot about, and I appreciate your arguments, Dr. Rhodes. Um, I think that human rights is being watered down the concept of it, and that is at the basis of what we're doing in our institutions. My question is this. I'm wondering, Dr. Rhodes, how you would articulate this, um, the economic freedoms. Uh, my research is in the Gulf Cooperation Council countries on economic and social freedom and labor markets. If you look at economic agency, um, for example, uh, women's women who do not have the right to own property in certain countries, women who cannot inherit property, women who are not able to take jobs because of their culture. I'm just wondering, how would you articulate that in the context of your argument? Thank you. 
Uh, well, I, I would see these as, as civil and political rights, uh, basically. Uh, economic, what you do with, with, with your labor, with your freedom, this, 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 these are covered by civil and political rights, the basic rights to freedom and uh, freedom of expression, association, uh, labor rights, and so on. And uh, which, you know, um, so I don't think that economic rights constitute something, you know, outside of those core civil and political rights. But I do think uh, your question has made me, um, has stimulated me to think, though, uh, uh, in a way that, um, that there's room to, to interpret economic and social rights in a way that, are, that, is, that, that, that is consistent with uh, civil and political rights. And um, you find some, 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 a few sparse references to this in the history of the formation of uh, United Nations human rights treaties. That um, some of the liberals and some of the Americans who were involved at the time um, uh, saw economic and social rights as, as uh, the things that you're talking about, as economic rights. And uh, as, uh, and, and, and it's a shame that more people don't think in this way. One more question. So if somebody has one more question, we'll take it. We'll take it. We have time for one, not more than one more question. It's coming from that gentleman over there. And you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. <laughs> Francis O'Neill, Upperville, Virginia. Um, if the origin of the evolution of natural rights begins in the English common law, and I think that is a very valuable point, is it reasonable to think that this will be in the intellectual baggage of other peoples. If you look at the French Revolution, they were talking about completely different things. As Edmund Burke pointed out very clearly, and that is my question, the, how universal this concept really is. You know, I can only answer this in a very vague and general way. But it seems to me the difference between something like um, the British common law and something like the, our Declaration of Independence and Constitution and the, early, and, and, and the, 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 the French Declaration on the Rights of Man and so on, the difference between that and, and uh, what was going on in other, other societies is that it, you, know, you, you, you can't simply reduce that to something as a kind of local ideology. And the postmodernists, in their attack on universal values and on natural rights, this is what they say. This is simply politics in a, in a, a local politics. It has no relevance to, to, to mankind. There is no mankind. They say so. Human rights is about man as man, and in, in this in this idea, this this was something that originated probably earliest with the Stoics. And and so I think you can argue that it talks on a universal level. I believe that. Maybe maybe it's a kind of religion, but I do believe this. Well, since you've raised the universality issue, Aaron, and the question dealt raised the French. Revolution. Um, 
there was a watershed moment in the French Revolution when the uh, demand shifted from liberty to bread. And that's when you made a switch from the classic liberal rights to the modern social and economic rights. You can universalize claims to freedom. We can all enjoy the freedom from interference, unjustified interference from others. We can all enjoy that freedom at the same time and in the same respect, to put it in Aristotelian terminology with respect to the law of contradiction. That cannot be said for these social and economic rights. We cannot all enjoy them at the same time and in the same respect. Somebody is receiving, someone else is paying. And that's the fundamental difference between the two categories of rights. One is universalizable, the other is not. Oh, come on. Roger, you decide. Roger, you decide. If Dr. Yes, Pilon wants to, to ask a question, far be it from me to oh, gainsay her. Make it quick. No, actually, uh, I just wanted to help um, address the question, the issue that was brought up earlier in one minute, and then we'll be all set. Um, because the, the theoretical aspect of the conversation is one thing, the practical, the cultural implementation is another. And we can go back to the Stoics, indeed we can go back to the Bible, and for that matter, indeed the Jewish tradition specifically, where uh, the concepts of, uh, of freedom as individual liberty is distinguished from that which, as, if you will, good Samaritans, uh, we all should be engaged in. Fair enough. But theory aside, the implementation, it's only really been in the Anglo-American tradition that this has happened. And unfortunately, one of the problems today, in addition to all the conceptual confusions that have been pointed out, is a lack of that which made the United States so dynamic. And it's a lack of appreciation of the importance of individual freedom. People today are perfectly comfortable asking for the government to do this and that and the other thing for them. And so we uh, need to recover uh, not only the ideas, but the practice of freedom. Thanks very much. I'm actually a little bit more optimistic than you about the rest of the world, but that can be another discussion. I'm afraid we actually have run out of time. Uh, please join me in thanking our speakers today.